Hi, I'm Deb Crow, and welcome to season two of the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast. This is a podcast where we connect, learn, and laugh together with strong leaders from all over the globe. Here, you will learn from peers you haven't even met yet. You will gain new tools to add to your leadership toolbox. Because whether you're a C-suite executive or a first-time entrepreneur, we all contend with challenges and there's always room for improvement if we choose to seek it. So please, pull up a chair and listen in. This is the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. Welcome back to Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. You know, the more I do this podcast, the more I realize I think I've completely fallen in love with the word imperfect. I love how it rolls off my tongue. I love when I am imperfect. And I love the quality of guests that keep being referred to the show. And we are going to have a fun podcast show today. I have two amazing guests with me. And if you want to learn about stories and storytelling, this is the podcast for you. So I'm going to encourage you to grab a cup of coffee and pull up a chair because I have got Corey Blake and Genevieve Gelger on the show. Let me tell you a little bit about Corey and Jen. Corey began his storytelling career as an actor, once starring in one of the 50 greatest Super Bowl ads of all time. That's going to be a story and a conversation in itself. Corey has spearheaded the conversion of best-selling business books into comic books with authors like Marshall Goldsmith, Chris Anderson, and many, many more. His efforts have landed him in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Forbes. So very excited to talk to Corey and the trajectory of his leadership career. And Genevieve, but we're going to call her Jen today because she likes to go by Jen. She is the director of the RTC Storytelling Course and a successful author in her own right. She's the co-author of Gathering Around the Table with EarthKind CEO Carrie Warburg-Block with a forthcoming book soon to be published with Ross Burdorf, the CEO and founder of Zen Business and the founding CTO for Home and Away. So Jen and Corey, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good Thank you, Deb. Wonderful to be with you. I love when I have couples on the show, whether they're business couples, husband and wife, we've done it a few times, we've done parent and child, and I just think it brings another dynamic. So I'm going to dive into my leadership questions, and I'm going to let you two bounce back and forth and decide who's going first. I'm, I'm delegating that right to you. So if you're ready, let's go. Let's do it. Okay, first question. Psychological safety has always been part of a, I'm going to call it subcategory of business acumen. It's come under the responsibility of VPs of people and culture and many other titles. I don't want to get hung up on titles, but I would love for you both to share. You say that there's three specific ways to create psychological safety necessary to explore stories. Give us a little glimpse into your work and where these three strategies or ways, as you call them, have a place in business. Absolutely. I'll dive into the three and then Jen can add some beautiful color. We operate under the three, what we call the three agreements for psychological safety. 
Um, the first one is a willingness to be present. As Deb knows, right before this, I said, you know, while I go on mute, you're going to see me run away for a quick second to just remind my wife that I'm going to be recording. The intention there is how do I set up my environment to support me being able to be 100% with whoever I'm with right now. And that just takes a little bit of intentionality and willingness. The second one is that we work very hard to suspend judgment, right? We are, we are human beings. We are judgment made. It's not going to go away. It's part of our survival mechanism. And we can encourage ourselves to kind of tuck it on a shelf for a while and just lean in with more curiosity as opposed to judgment, which allows us to be with each other as opposed to potentially against each other. And then the third one is no fixing and no solving. Um, we believe that um, it is more important for us to be with each other as, as we learn to become our own hero rather than to be constantly rescuing one another, which of course makes someone else a victim when we show up as a rescuer. So those three are really important for the psychological safety. I mean, they're imperative for, for business in general, but particularly when you're asking for vulnerability from people. What I love about our three agreements is, I mean, we use it primarily when we are dealing with clients or when we're within our storytelling course, but you see it show up a lot just in the context of our work with each other as a company. It's so great because, you know, as humans, we naturally are inclined to create stories and with lack of information, we will fill in the gaps on our own. And so coming together, whether it be for our team meetings, whether it be because two people have been locking horns about something and they need to sit down and resolve all of that. When we come together with those agreements, it alleviates that need to create those stories in our head that are more than likely not in our favor and gives us the opportunity to meet each other where we're at instead of from a space that could be destructive to the psychological safety. I love that you have a joint answer that complements one another. A couple of points I just wanted to unpack there. You know, part of my personal life is I became a yoga teacher, not to teach yoga because I wanted to be more present. And when you can learn the depths of the science of your mind and how that presence, and I love how you framed it, Jen, we automatically want to fix and fill in the blanks, don't we? It's just sometimes we lead with heart, but we have to pause, like you said, and lower the perception. I always say to people, come and sit in the observer's chair with me. We're just going to listen. We're just going to be present. It's a hard place for a lot of people to be, but I love that you have your three agreements. So again, being present, suspending judgment, and no fixing or solving. I love it. Okay, the second question has permanent residency on the show. That just means that every leader, and I think we're hitting 170 this month. I'm not too sure, but we've been doing this for almost two years on Wednesdays and Fridays. And I never get the same answer. And it always brings a lot of laughs. <laughs> Share what imperfections you both bring to your heart-centered leadership. And just remember, it's only a half-hour show. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I love it. You want to go first, Jen? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Where do I even begin? Okay. I experience the world through feeling, which means that I 
also feel very deeply the energy of the people we work with and my colleagues. And being an empath can create a desire within me to to fix, right? And one of our agreements is not to do that. But when people are feeling a degree of dissonance or they're in pain, I lean into wanting to somehow fix the situation and make it better. And I think anyone who defaults to landing on the side of love or leading with love can easily fall into that. And I have to constantly remind myself that sometimes the most loving thing I can do is to A, have the hard conversation because that doesn't mean I don't care about you. Or sometimes that means letting you fix it yourself and trusting that you will come to me if you need my support for something instead of me always trying to do that work on behalf of somebody else. There are many, many other imperfections, but that's the one that stands out to me most prominently from a heart-centered place. Thank you for sharing that, Jen. Thanks for leading the way with some some vulnerability there. There's a couple that are popping up for me, so I'll, I'll start with the one that's most sticky in the moment. I am a lover of chess. I, I play several games every day. They're very short, fast games. I like to beat chess. But if you combine that proclivity to be thinking ahead with a love of storytelling, I can easily find myself, you know, 100 miles down the track, not having communicated where I'm, where I, where I'm heading, where I am. Jen's cracking up right now for those who can't see her because she knows this part of me very well. It certainly can drive people a little batty. And, and it is, I mean, it is both an immense strength and an area of frustration, right? Like I think most of our imperfections are, they come from something that creates value and sometimes, right, detracts value or diminishes value. <laughs> when, when used appropriately, it is an amazing asset. And in the wrong situations, it is uh, debilitating, I think, for, for people and can cause suffering in, in some ways when people right, don't feel on the same page or, or if they start wondering if they're even in the same book because I've leapt so far ahead. And the fun part of that question and, and watching your facial expressions is I love the laughter that that question brings. And it's just truly, you know, I often say that heart-centered leadership plus diversity and inclusion equal a universal language. It doesn't matter what country my guests have been in, what language they speak, it always brings laughter. And I love that imperfect may have carried a negative connotation. But when it precedes heart-centered leadership, it brings laughter and us joking, you know, we only have a half hour show because most people have said, Deb, like how much time do you have? And I love the awareness and I love what you said, Jen. And, you know, fellow empath, INFJ, rare breed right here. You're an INFJ. (laughs) See, the universe aligns, serendipitous moment, ding, ding, ding. It's that cognitive life raft. You know, I always say to people, Your presence is honoring who you are and figuring out what I like to call and frame your cognitive currency. So don't grab the cognitive life, raft. Sometimes being imperfect is being silenced because it's such a superpower. You can sit in the observer's chair and just completely be quiet. And that observance, it allows you to really collect a lot of information, especially from nonverbal cues, right? 75% of our language expressively 
isn't even coming out of our mouths. So interesting, guys. and so fun. Okay, my next question is, the foundation of leading with heart-centered leadership is always trust. And I know that both of you have insights, awareness, and creation that truly can be profound. How did you create an innovation to bring storytelling into organizations to help teams elevate trust? How do you solidify that trust so people know when enough is enough or have they given enough to help elevate trust? I know that's a massive question, but I know you're both going to come at it from your areas of expertise and, and creativity. So bring us into that world a little bit, because I think it's so crucial now that for those organizations globally that are entertaining that hybrid or full return to work now. Well, the first thing that comes up for me energetically when I was hearing your question, Deb, was the fact that we tend to go through life reflecting and sharing on what we do and who we know and what we have. There is an inherent trust that starts to be created when we share our humanity with one another, when we share who we are and what we've been through in how we got to this place. And when we work with companies, when we work with individual clients, even when we work together as a team, you can never unsee someone's humanity. And through the sharing of our stories, that's what we do. So in a lot of ways, that trust is created because we trust that the other people can handle our stories, right? That goes hand in hand with not fixing them. We default to wanting to protect them, be like, maybe my story is too much, or maybe my story is not enough. And that's us not trusting that the people in the room that we're sharing space with can handle whatever we're about to share or hold space for us in return. It's hard for me personally to take the word enough and trust in the same sentence because it's constantly moving on a spectrum. You know, our own baggage that we bring to the table impacts that and just how our day is going. But the more that we can show up and say, this is how I am today and bring your whole self, then I think that automatically creates trust with anybody that you're interacting with and sharing life with and engaging with. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's what came up for me as you were asking it. <laughs> I thought it was lovely. Thank you. I'll share with you a little bit of just the background of how we've been paying attention to trust. We recognized very early on because while our storytelling course today is a huge priority and piece of our passion. We were born as a book writing company and which we still do today and, and as a dear part of our business. And we help people to write not just any book, but the book they're born to write. And that process we recognized early on 2007, 2008, that trust is required every step of the way in order for an author to continue to say the things out loud that they've never said to their spouse and eventually get to the point where they're saying things out loud they've never said to themselves. So all that can become part of the book and they have to go through their own trusting process of getting to the point where they're ready to share that with the world, right? So 
early on, we started taking looks at every step in our process and trying to infuse every step with trust enhancement, recognizing that any breaks in the chain deplete trust. Even if someone gets an unexplained invoice, well, then the creative team supporting that person has to somehow find their way around, right? A moment of trust being broken with the organization or confusion being inserted. And so we've just been highly intentional every step of the way, not to say that it's a perfect capability, but we are constantly reflecting on how do we create a more trusting environment so that anyone we're engaging with can go to deeper and deeper layers of self-understanding. We're always considering what's the container that we are supporting right? So that they feel safe enough to explore the things that there's nowhere else that they've felt okay exploring. A lot of shadow side stuff that certainly comes up, right? And and you just have to have a certain level of trusting environment for that to even be considered. It's so interesting. You know, my word for 2022, and I've had a word for about 10 years now is intentional. And when you're intentional, it is that trust enhancement in self, It's being able to say heart-centered and be heart-centered. And I posted about this yesterday. You can have intent and impact at the same time when you remove self from the quotient. It's powerful. It's heart-centered. And like you said, Jen, trust is enough. Know when to say when. This is kind of a theme going on here, knowing when not to speak and showing up authentically. Heart-centered leadership It isn't a description on your CV. It's a daily behavior. Because to me, my definition is heart-centered leadership is honoring your connection with people. And I'm going to add another line to it because I find I'm saying this a lot. If I did something for either of you, I know right now you wouldn't say to me, what can I do for you? Because the understanding of the connection is that it doesn't come with reciprocity because it's not a transaction. It's a connection. I'm getting goosebumps here, guys. This is such a great conversation. Best kind of conversation. Oh, I love it. Nobody ever knows the questions before. And this is why, because we unpack and have this amazing conversation. Okay, my last question, it's a hard one. And I'm going to preface it by saying, don't overthink this. Please give me your gut reaction. Don't overthink it. Have you met us? Don't overthink it. (laughs) You don't say that to an INFJ. That's like saying, what? Well, don't overfeel it and don't overthink it are different. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. The feeling and thinking. The whole cognitive umbrella is going up here. Tell me who you were as a leader before the work you're doing now. And who are you now as a leader? What's the bridge? I was um, very achievement oriented when I was younger, which is not unusual, of course. You know, I started off as an Enneagram three before I transitioned to uh, other areas. And now I show up very much as an enthusiast. But I think I was agenda driven. I would build a list of all the great things that I would do so that I could use that list to my advantage, right, later. And I had enough moments where that blew up in my face that eventually I had to start learning how to do some things differently. And then I got somewhat addicted to personal development and expanding my own tool set so that I could show up more gracefully for those that I care about and for the world in service to to what we do. So I work very hard now and very consistently to support my well-being, my emotional well-being, so that I can be as graceful as I'm able, um, particularly with our people. 
because I've created enough unnecessary suffering, even within my own organization. It's a form of undermining or self-sabotage, right? That can come from imposter syndrome. And it does come back to a version of trust that I'm, I am more trustworthy externally when I'm more trustworthy internally. So that's, I put a lot of intention into that now. And I'm very grateful to be that kind of leader. Again, I start at zero every day and do my best. So it's very imperfect, but I appreciate the intentionality that I put into that kind of leadership now. Dude, that's a great answer. (laughs) Okay, I went, I didn't overthink it. And my response was internally that I wouldn't have called myself a leader. I am an Enneagram 4, INFJ. I started as a photographer and writer, which is all behind the scenes, behind the camera, behind the words. And honestly, I felt like my imperfections would keep me from being a leader because I didn't have all the answers and I didn't have all the expertise and everything. And I didn't have necessarily the right degrees from university to do whatever. And then over time with a lot of grace and a lot of changing the narrative, if you will, of my own story, I was able to see that being the person to go first in terms of vulnerability allows me to be a leader because it creates space for others to go after. And that being a leader doesn't mean having to be perfect. Being a leader can mean demonstrating that imperfection for those around you and doing it anyways and saying you're sorry sometimes and recognizing that everyone leans into their own strengths and giving them the space to do that because really as a leader you're creating a team and helping that team get towards their goals versus doing your own thing. That response almost makes me emotional. And you have just beautifully and eloquently stated why I created this podcast almost two years ago. We're heading to the end of season two. Leadership belongs to everybody. It's everybody's birthright. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what your job title is, what your role is, what your responsibility. That's a piece of paper. It comes back to the foundation of your behavior, how you self-audit who you are, your narrative, your story. And what a great question to ask you too. I normally don't ask that in a leadership. And I thought there's a story here, no pun intended. (laughs) And it's just interesting to showcase the premise of the show. You recognize who you were, you recognized where you wanted to be. You know, when we look inward, we awaken the heart-centric leader. I would add to that though, Deb, that, and thank you, because that's, lovely. And I also think that surrounding yourself with people who can reflect those strengths and those values helps that a lot. Like I most certainly didn't make that transition by myself, right? It's working with people like Corey and the other people on our team who see something in you that you may not see in yourself and help to infuse those values as well. Well, and it brings up another point that we continue to evolve in our lives as human beings. So the people you may have hung out with when you were younger, you have an attraction to your tribe, if you will. Find the vibe with your tribe, just to put a little bit of fun pun there. But it doesn't mean because you stop to hang around certain people or talk to certain people 
to me, it just means that you are foundationally seated in your being and who you love to be surrounded by. And it's okay to create a new chapter in your story. So I knew this was going to be an amazing conversation. I'm just, I'm ready. To, I'm ready to drop the mic right now. We're not even done. Can I, can I brag on Jen for a second in terms of your, of your question? So yes, you can <laughs> brag on Jen. I mean, you're highlighting for me also that heart centered leadership is hard, but one of the things that I, I really commend Jen for is I sometimes refer to her as our canary because she feels things so deeply. She'll start singing when she realizes something's out of alignment and she doesn't necessarily have the language for exactly what it is yet, or we don't have the ability to hear what it is yet. And that can create a lot of emotional challenge in the whole ecosystem that she, by stepping out and leading with the vulnerability of something feels off and the team not always being able to respond with immense grace because you know life is busy, there's a lot going on and it can be easy for other people to respond in a way then Jen has to figure out oh, how do I how do I make my way through the emotions that have been created? And that's a tough, tough place, but she continues to step into that. And every time she does, uh, from my perspective, I've seen when eventually we figure it out, it was so important that she stepped forward and started singing. That's, I, I just, I like that terminology, but it isn't, it isn't easy. And she puts herself in a position that is very vulnerable. And yet she continues to do it because it's the right thing to do to help all of us get where we want to go. But it's hard. It's hard. And I, I really commend her for the willingness to step into some of the heartache that can come with that. Heart-centered leadership is not easy. It is hard and it is not for the faint-hearted. So very nice. I love it. Okay, guys, we're going to do the rapid round of what I call my fab four. Four fun questions. Don't think what's on the top of that brilliant mind. Here we go. First question. Jen, tell us something we don't know about you. I love the stars. I wanted to be an astronomer for most of my life when I was a kid. And I even have my own star that was given to me when my first book came out. And I will forever love the stars. Always, always. My Irish Nana used to say that famous quote. I don't even know who said it. Always shoot for the moon because at least if you fail, you'll land with the stars. Amen. Astronomer Jen. Okay, that's what we're <laughs> calling her now. And Corey, what do we not know about you? A misleading aspect of my personality has become that uh, over the past few years, I've gone from extreme extrovert to rather extreme introvert. Like I just was in Austin and about two minutes of being in a room of only like 20 people, I, I wanted to run and go hide in the cave because my it's like my neural pathways had no understanding of where the heck I had inserted myself. And these are people I care about and adore. And like, I, I think I present very extroverted and I love that part of myself. But I've also really something about the isolation. I've, I've found ways to appreciate it. And I'm excited to lean back into more of the extroversion in slow doses. I love that. You know, that is such a great trait to have because I'm an INFJ and most people think I'm extroverted. I got to come home and I'm like an electric car. Like I got to be plugged back in, recharged. Give me my chair, give me my books, give me my tea, give me my blanket, my slippers, whatever. <laughs> People fail to recognize that introverts have a deep visceral level of thought. 
And when we come out with something, regardless if it's a speech, an article, a book, a conversation, we only can do so much because we got to go recharge because we give so much. It's deep for us. It's visceral. It's my favorite word. That's so great because Corey said to me last week, he was like, you know, if you weren't such a great storyteller, you'd be a much calmer person. (laughs) He's like, but don't ever change. (laughs) I love that. I love it. Okay. Second question. Favorite book you've ever read that was really life-changing? Million Little Pieces by James Bryant. It was the very first book that I read that felt like the way I experienced the world. It was very void of like all the the rules of writing. And it was just this stream of consciousness, like he was having a conversation. And I was so moved by the story as well. But just the way he expressed it gave me permission to write that way myself. And it's worked out well so far. (laughs) Mine is a a book called Mila 18 by Leon Uris. Leon Uris was a prolific Jewish author wrote a lot about World War II and Nazi Germany and the Irish potato famine. And he wrote historical fiction that, which I did not understand what that term meant when I first found his books in college. They're also tied to my favorite professor of all time. So there's, there's some meaning there, but the books were so real to me that after I finished a series of, of three of his books, I went to the library to learn more about these people. And I was achingly heartbroken to find that those people didn't actually exist. And that was my education on what historical fiction is, but it has informed so much of the work that we do as a company in terms of how do you breathe so much life into self-expression, whether it's character or true human in a way that the world is leaning forward and wants to connect with them deeply. I love that. Okay. Third question's really fun. I'm going to even throw something fun er in this. Yes, that's a word. It's a word on this show. <laughs> yeah, it is. I'm going to have you guess based on how well you know each other. Oh, no. <laughs> Corey, <laughs> if Jen could have dinner with any leader in the world, who do you think she'd want to have dinner with and why? And what would they talk about? And then Jen, you're going to tell me who Corey's would be. Don't think. No thinking. For Janet would be somebody who loves ketchup chips. Oh my gosh, such a dork. It's an ongoing, <laughs> you're from Canada, you know what ketchup chips are. I, I mean, I, Jen's got this whole political background that I was not part of her life for, but it shows up in little doses all over the place. And so I'm going to say Justin Trudeau, I, I might be totally off here, but I think that's somebody that she would love to spend time with. And I think, I think she would really appreciate a conversation about how do we better love the world. Oh, I would love to do that. And I didn't even know I wanted to until you said that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's lovely. (laughs) All right. My guess is I think that he would love to have dinner with all of us, his team that he hasn't been together with in a really long time. And I think he would love to talk about how we're all going to make the world a better place through the work that we do. And I think he would want to just spend time hearing about how everyone's doing and everything we haven't been able to do in person together. I felt a gush of emotion when you said that. And and in my head, I saw the restaurant. I know exactly where we would go. Oh, where? Where would we go? It's in Cleveland. Oh, 
I've never been to Cleveland. Let's do it. Can I be invited too? Can I be part of the party? Yes, please. I mean, you orchestrated the moment, so the moment is yours. I know. There you go. <laughs> you know, guys, this has been so wonderful. And, and I want to give a shout out to Marie for once again, you know, sending me an email and saying, Deb, this is your tribe. These are your people. She always recommends such amazing guests for the show. And I always love having business partners on the show. And it's fun to bounce back and forth and just see the true serendipity that lies for both of you. It's beautiful. So thank you for your time and your expertise and the most important for sharing your heart. And I'm going to ask you question number four. It's how we close out the show. But before we do that, I just wanted to mention that our heart-centered leadership poster that we unveiled to the world in January of 2020 has now been downloaded over 116,000 times. And I'm truly humbled that it's now in 16 languages. More clients are like, we have a client or a colleague in this country. And it's just, it's got some serious air miles. and. It's why I get up in the morning. I love sharing that document. So doing a post and getting it out there and we'll continue to translate it in as many languages as I can to keep leading with love because it has a place in business acumen and you don't need a title to be a heart-centered leader or to incorporate that in your leadership. Okay, we're going to close out the show. I'm going to give you both an opportunity to answer this question from your heart. Intention in yoga in Sanskrit is called a sankalpa. So think about your sankalpa before you answer it. And here's the sentence I'd like you to finish. Heart-centered leadership is? Heart-centered leadership is what the world needs more of. Heart-centered leadership is stepping out and risking my own vulnerability to create a space that encourages others to do the same. You've been listening to the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. I'm Deb Crow. If you like what you heard today, please rate and review the show. And I'd love it if you'd visit my website at debcrow.com, where you can sign up for my newsletter and get access to the Heart-Centered Leadership Toolkit, all free of charge. Thanks for your time, and we'll see you again.